all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is the program where you can call in with any type of medical question that you might have. It might be about yourself or somebody else. You are more than welcome to call us right now. You can always email us. We do try to respond to those emails. Uh, you can reach us at, by emailing at remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday morning right now, or if you're listening to our podcast, which is another way. We've got tons of ways you can listen to Southern Remedy. So uh, a podcast is another one. I said that the other day to a friend of mine. He said, you know, I never can quite catch your show at 11, but um, I, I don't know if I you know, ever get to hear you. I said, well, you can. If, you, if, if the sound of my voice is, is sounds at least a little bit uh, appealing, which I don't think it does. Uh, you can at least listen to the information by downloading um, Southern Remedy on whatever your favorite uh, podcasting app is, and then you can listen at your leisure and uh, or catch parts of shows that you miss. But that's a, a great way to tap into that. I know I listen to a couple of podcasts, and it's very convenient for me to do that uh, rather than hearing it live. But we love uh, the uh, fact that this this Wednesday show it really is driven in content by whatever um, whatever type of question that you have, and uh, it's always good. You always don't know what you're going to get, sort of like what Forrest Gump says. It's like a box of chocolates, but um, it is really important. And usually, the, almost every question we get is applicable to such a larger audience that we have. Um, it's just a great way to share that across the state and to our neighboring states as well, or even across the world. And every once in a while, we'll have a caller who calls in who listens online. I think we had somebody from uh, Brazil who is uh, listening in from time to time. They'll have a, a question that they call in. So lots of great weather we've been having in the state. And uh, the humidity is slowly creeping back up here in the south. I just uh, got back from uh, a trip to Colorado um, and certainly a lot less humidity there and a lot uh, uh, differences in temperatures. But basically here in the south still, uh, it is uh, easy to get outside and get some things done that you need to get done and enjoy that weather. Do want to keep in mind as we move from spring into summer that uh, if particularly if you're taking some trips to the beach or you're uh, going to get out in the sun more that you uh, – 
have the appropriate uh, protection uh, with what you're wearing, whether that's longer sleeves or a hat uh, or with uh, with uh, sunblock. And uh, certainly we see our fair share of uh, skin cancers in clinic. And uh, I know if you for our, my dermatology friends, it's a lot of that. And it's a easy thing to, to help reduce your risk, particularly if you're more of a, a fair skinned individual and burn more easily, uh, particularly if you're younger. I know everybody likes to have that nice tan. Um, it doesn't pay to do that out in the sunlight or in the tanning bed. Certainly spray tans are an option for a lot of people, particularly, again, if you're more of the fairer complexion. Uh, but just keep that in mind if you're out there. There's plenty of ways that you can enjoy things, particularly here in the South. But we want to stay as uh, safe as you can so that you can enjoy that for years to come. Let's go to our first caller. We've got Craig from Biloxi. Good morning, Craig. Yeah, good morning. Uh, my knee has been hurting uh, when I bend it. I, for, I'd like to know also is you know at, at some time if, if I if it yeah right if you have knee pain when you bend it can I still walk on it and, and does that cause further injury? But I'd like to know what possible things it's uh, it basically when I bend it all the way down like when I do a knee stoop I cannot do that anymore it's it's very painful yeah but when I'm walking upright painful yeah it's not not painful when you're walking upright is that what you're saying correct and, okay. and I'd like to know if it's safe, if I can walk on it without doing further damage to it for one. Yeah. Yeah. Knee pain can be caused by a number of things. And uh, one other question that I wanted to ask, too, is if you had any previous injury to that knee? Uh, decades ago, uh, nothing serious. Uh, maybe some you know, tweak muscles or tendons, uh, nothing, nothing real serious. Sure. Okay. So, um, yeah, lots of things can cause knee pain. And, uh, usually if it's something that you described, like if you bend your knee, basically that's putting increased pressure in the interior of the joint. It's not a bad thing, but if you have something going on in the knee capsule itself, sometimes that can cause some pain. Uh, it can be something as benign as having a little extra fluid in there. So just the stretch of those pain fibers in the, the joint capsule with having extra fluid. We need fluid in our knee, a small amount of lubrication uh, for the uh, bones and cartilage to move on each other. But a lot of times if you have too much of that, that's when you'll feel it is when you um, when you bend your knee completely. The other thing that's a common occurrence is the menisci that can be torn or you can have a little piece of it that sort of flips up. And the meniscus, you have you have two major meniscus in your knee. And basically, those are the cushions between the joints. So you have the upper leg bone, the, the uh, femur that it articulates or it moves in contact with the lower leg bone, the tibia. And that joint um, space where they touch each other is lined with cartilage, and it has an extra little layer in there of menisci that help as cushions. And when you have a tear in that, and that's one of the reasons why I ask about a previous injury, you don't have to have a previous injury that you've noticed, but there can be a little injury to that meniscus so that you get a piece that sort of flips up. And um, when it flips up, it'll sort of catch or cause pain with a certain movement. And that may be what's happening in your knee. I, it's hard to tell exactly until you get like an MRI of the knee to really see the soft tissue structures. An x-ray really won't show you that. An x-ray will show you if you have any changes to the 
uh, bones or the joint space if it's worn down. But this sounds like that might be what's happening is if it's not all the time and if you're standing up on it and you're not having any problems, when you put that knee into its full um, flexion like that with bending it, you may be causing that little piece of cartilage to uh, or meniscus to sort of flip up and cause some pain there. Um, not necessarily anything you need to do about it until it gets worse. If it's, if it becomes more frequent, um, but if it's every time that you're bending your knee, I might at least have somebody look at it, make sure your knee's not unstable and that you don't have a ligament problem there too. And then decide if they may need to send you to a specialist or get further imaging like an MRI. Um, and that would at least tell you what you're dealing with. A lot of times you don't have to go to surgery for those kinds of things. If it's a little piece, sometimes they can shave that off with a, a laparoscopic surgery where they just insert a small, uh, you know, small uh, tube in there that can do that. Um, but again, you know, I, I'd get it checked out. I wouldn't let it limit your activity. In other words, if it's, you know, these kinds of things tend to get worse with time, but it is a matter of timing. If you got other stuff that's going on right now, you don't want to be bothered with it. I, I think that's fine unless the pain gets worse. Okay. I'll go get it looked at. Thank you. All right, Craig. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Barbara from Boonville. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Um, I heard about a, a study that shown that Benadryl causes dementia. Um, is that true? If you take, like, if you're older and you take, like, one a day? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm not aware of a study that's out there about it causing dementia. But there is another term that can sometimes have similar symptoms called delirium. And that can be sort of a, a confusion or can cause sort of dementia-like symptoms, but it's not progressive like dementia is. Now, as you get older, there are certain medications that can have side effects that sort of mimic dementia. They don't necessarily cause it, but again, you know, you might have some memory loss or confusion um, or some of the other symptoms. And Benadryl's on one of those lists. It's actually a list of medications called Beers criteria, B-E-E-R-S, um, and that can that can actually uh, have a have a list of uh, a list of medications that you may want to uh, at least consider avoiding. Now, on the flip side, if you've been taking Benadryl for years and it's not you know for sleep or whatever reason, just once a day probably not causing you a whole lot of problems. Another side effect that you have to watch out for is bladder retention. So it can uh, uh, have urinary retention of, of urine to where you're having some problems emptying your bladder. And that, again, you can be taking it perfectly fine for years. And then once you reach the age of about 65 or older, just because of the way our bodies metabolize medications, then you need to consider maybe that may not be the best thing right now. But that I would just discuss it with your physician. And if they're fine with you taking that, I think you could keep on doing it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. Appreciate thank your information. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Yeah, beers criteria, if anybody's interested in that. And there's, uh, you know, geriatric websites frequently list those kinds of things. And 
that's one of the things we view uh, on a list of the medication list of when a patient comes in the hospital and they are over the age of 65, we look to see if any of those medications may be causing those uh, some of those symptoms that they're having. Uh, previous caller was asking about um, Benadryl causing dementia, and we were mentioning that um, I wasn't aware of the study that, that looked at that, but that delirium is a possibility there. There's a list of medications when you're over the age of 65 that you have to be careful about, even if you've been taking them for years because of the way the body metabolizes those. And that's that's called beer's criteria. It doesn't mean you can go drink beer, uh, but it is B-E-E, the same way you would spell it, but B-E-E-R-S. But it's a list. If you're interested, you can go to the American Geriatric Society just Google that, look it up on the Internet and say, what are the beers criteria? And it can give you a, it has a nice table in there, I think, that has a list of medications. The recommendations for if, if you are of that age, whether or not you should still be taking those and then, you know, sort of what to avoid and some of the side effects are there. So if you see one of the medications that you're taking in that category and you're, you know, you're over the age of 65, you might want to have a discussion with your, your physician. There may be some very good reasons why you're still on those. Um, but you need to be sort of careful about that. And a lot of them are over the counter too. And again, delirium, not the same as dementia. Dementia is usually a progressive loss of brain function and it can be depending on what type everybody sort of knows the Alzheimer's type, but there are other types of dementia. Uh, they can affect your, of course, your memory, how well you function. Some of them affect speech and, uh, even, um, your, uh, emotions, your emotional ability. But anytime anybody either gets a medication um, that they can have some some side effects on, or if they're in the hospital, let's say they have pneumonia and are admitted uh, and they're 80, um, and uh, that all of a sudden, particularly later in the day, they can't tell what time it is. They don't know who they are. They may uh, be confused about where they are. That's likely not dementia that is probably more delirium and that is a reversible thing uh usually it's uh you have to look for some of the things that are causing it and uh uh, it can last even out outside the hospital setting too for a few days until you get back into a routine Uh, sleep deprivation can do that too uh, and you don't have to be in the hospital. You can have that at home, too, with different things. So, again, it's reversible. It's caused by something external. And you can certainly have dementia and then have a delirious episode. Um, but it is something that's two distinct um, um, things that are going on there. So that's probably what we were talking about with Benadryl. But there is a list of other medications that are there that, again, some of them over the counter. Some of them are prescription medications that you need to avoid. Mentioned going out and getting in some sunshine, and we're past uh, Memorial Day, which means uh, things are opening up in lots of uh, water parks and beaches. And uh, with that, there's opportunities to have a great time with friends and family or by yourself if you just want to get away from them and all. But you do need to be careful. We mentioned sun uh, protection from uh, excess sun exposure uh, being one of those and the risk of, uh, of skin cancers. Uh, if you do have a lot of previous skin damage, uh, not just during this time of year, it's probably a good idea to have at least once a year to have a dermatologist look at you. 
They call that sort of an annual full skin exam. Most insurance companies pay for that, particularly if you already have some skin damage. It's a great way for them to just, you know, have a look and catch uh, catch some things earlier. Uh, if you've got a place on your skin that's irritating, flaking, maybe it's changed in um, in how it looks. It uh, may have a color change, may be uh, growing in diameter, uh, or if it just looks funny to you or somebody else if you can't see it directly. That's a, a great um, trigger to tell your physician uh, that you may need to see a dermatologist for that. And they can look at it and most of the time tell you if something's benign or not. If there's any question, uh, they may take a little biopsy of it. Uh, all kinds of different ways to deal with those. Um, the large majority of things that they see in sun-damaged skin are benign, but there are some malignant things that they see that, again, if you catch them earlier, uh, you can have a much better outcome than if you let them go. And uh, I know a couple of my older patients, they've been like, you know what, I just I don't understand, you know, like why I need to go and have somebody look at this. This has been fine all my life. Um, yeah, it's changed a little bit and maybe a little flakier or uh, harder, but uh, and then they've ended up having a basal cell cancer that needs to be uh, removed. So uh, it does, it's a lot easier if you can do that, a lot easier if you can just um, decrease the amount of UV radiation that you get. And uh, certainly sunblock can help. It doesn't entirely remove that. Keep in mind that you have to reapply. Can't just, uh, this is one of the things that, that just follows me and is my bane is, uh, is not reapplying sunblock because I get, um, I'm, I am guilty with the rest of you about putting it on and then forgetting about it. And it's like, what time did I put that on? It's been five hours. Okay. I probably should have reapplied four hours ago. Uh, also keep in mind, if you have a combination product of sunblock and, uh, insect repellent, almost always insect repellent is going to last longer. Uh, so you may need to reapply according to the sunblock portion of that because a lot of people I know have some combinations, and we certainly have uh, plenty of mosquitoes here in the south. And something else you need to uh, at least protect yourself for. Um, people ask me sometimes, you know, do we still have to worry about some of the mosquito-borne illnesses here in the south? You know, from time to time we've had things like West Nile virus or Zika virus, and they sort of come and go. Those are still out there. Every once in a while, we'll see a patient, particularly an immunocompromised patient, that um, uh, for whatever reason may have an infection of uh, West Nile. Uh, St. Louis encephalitis is another one. So there's a handful of them that can cause some problems um, with uh, infections and flu-like symptoms and even meningitis-type symptoms. Um uh, where you actually have delirium. Uh, but all of those uh, are carried by our friend, the mosquito, here in the south. And, of course, here uh, in Mississippi, you can have those mosquitoes all year round, just about. There's very few temperatures here that can totally eradicate them. And once things warm up, they only need a little bit of water, about a, you know less than an inch of water to reproduce in. So things like pots that you're watering that have catch basins, uh, certainly can breed mosquitoes. You want to try to eliminate all those. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of products out there to get rid of it. You want to be careful with those, particularly around young children. Some of them work. Some of them don't. You know, things like citronella, they smell really good, but you have to plant a lot of it to get rid of mosquitoes or rub in it. You almost have to just break off a piece of the plant and rub yourself with that. And for whatever reason, and there have been some studies on this, some people 
tend to taste better to the mosquito than others. So they're sort of attracted to some people. I've been outside and I looked around. I'm the only one getting bit and I've got a swarm of them. I guess I'm protecting other people when I'm outside uh, by attracting the mosquitoes. But just keep that in mind um, and try to avoid that uh, because, again, we do certainly don't have as, as many of those illnesses going around right now, but there's plenty of those out there that you can get that. Another little critter that is, is out and about this time of year are ticks and fleas, more so with ticks if you're going through the woods, and they are just sitting out there on a branch or something that you brush up against or a weed just to hitch a ride and uh, to do their business. And in addition to really cause in a a an inflammatory response, they can carry some diseases. So everybody's always asking about Lyme disease. We don't have a lot of it in the state. Certainly we have, if you travel out of state, it's more of a risk. But we do have other things that you can get here, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Rickettsia. There's a handful of those that can travel along with a tick. Again, if you are going to be in those areas, you want to Wear longer uh, clothing that uh, helps protect you. If you're going to wear shorts or something like that, an insect repellent would probably be good to put on beforehand. So stay safe. You can be active and enjoy things that are out there, but we want people to uh, to do that in a way that's not uh, not going to harm them. I can say, you know, I actually the first summer I was uh, uh, the first summer that West Nile rolled through the state in the early 2000s. I contracted it. Worse, it felt like the worst case of flu that I ever had. I had a terrible headache and really felt bad with flu-like symptoms for about six weeks before they finally went away. So it was a miserable experience for me. A lot of people are asymptomatic with that, but I was not. And uh, certainly I've had a couple of instances where I've gotten bit by a tick that I just sort of missed after I'd been uh, out and about in the woods and uh, caused some infection where I had to take some antibiotics. So you want to be careful out there. And if you do have something like that, go see your physician so they can take a look and treat you appropriately. Um, It's not just in, in some of those, you really have to be selective about what type of antibiotic that you use. It's not one that say, you know, you could just uh, um, cure with amoxil or augmentin, uh, particularly the tick-borne diseases. You really have to, there's some ways to test for that if, if that's what you have and treat it appropriately. You know, another thing that uh, we get around this time of year is do you need to change your medicines if you're going to be outside more in, in the heat, particularly diabetes and hypertension medications? Now it is true that when you're more when you do more stressful things from a physical standpoint so you're going to go out there you're going to work in your flower garden or you're going to go out there and and pick some vegetables and you've got some really good looking tomatoes and spend a lot of time out there doing all the all the good things we get to do in Mississippi like that do you need to change some of your medications and um, I get this a lot I actually got this question yesterday in clinic um, it is not advisable usually to do that, although there may be some circumstances that your individual physician may talk to you about that. But um, if you hydrate appropriately um, and you uh, do that often, if you're outside and take some breaks, you should be fine, even if you're taking things like diuretics. Um, as far as your your diabetes medications, if you get more physical activity at any time of the year, your blood sugar tends to go down if everything else remains the same. So if your diet remains the same and you exercise a lot, 
that certainly will decrease your blood sugar. And over a long period of time, you may need to decrease those medications, but it's not something that, say, you need to change over the course of a day or two or even multiple times a week. Um, but And again, there are ways to test for that and to look at what your average blood sugar is. That's called an A1C is most of the ways that we test for that. Uh, and what your other blood sugars throughout the day are doing. Uh, so again, don't stop those, you know, cold turkey without talking to your physician if it's appropriate. And rarely in the case of diabetes do you have to do that. Now, there are some other conditions out there that you want to be extra uh, careful if you're outside. Heart failure is one of them um, because you may already be on other types of diuretics, fluid medications that help uh, balance that fluid status uh, with the amount of uh, fluid that your heart is getting to pump blood. So um, you want to be very careful with that and sort of balance that out. Weight is a great way to do that. So if you're concerned about that, you can weigh yourself before you go outside and then about every hour or two, take some breaks, come back in, weigh yourself. If you've lost more than about a pound or two, you probably are getting or losing too much fluid and you may want to, you know, uh, drink a little bit uh, excess fluid than you normally would. But uh, again, your physician should be able to guide you through that. We don't want people to miss out on all the opportunities outdoors, particularly in the warmer parts of the South. But you do need to take some special precautions and at least be thinking about that. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about any kind of healthcare topic that you might have. Might be a new uh, medication that you're taking, a side effect, or maybe a diagnosis that you don't quite understand completely. Email us with your question. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. And speaking of, we got this email from Julie. She says, hi, the new blood thinners are so expensive. Are older medications a good alternative? And the context there, she said, my dad was prescribed Eliquis for a blood clot. And an excellent question, one that comes up. You know, when I was in training, we really only had one. Uh, we had two blood thinners. We had heparin and we had um, we had warfarin or coumadin is another name for that one. And um, they worked a little bit differently on different pathways. Coumadin is an oral medication, so you can take that um, at home. But heparin is injected either through a uh, an IV or underneath the skin. So there were different situations we were giving each one of those. And generally speaking, blood thinners are to uh, prevent a clot. And it can be something that you have to do long term, like if you have an irregular heart rate, uh, heart rhythm like atrial fibrillation, or if your heart is not pumping blood effectively and you have heart failure, uh, then when that blood pulls for whatever reason and stays still, then you can have a blood clot and the risk there is that it can travel downstream. Or if you have a blood clot from an immobility or a hypercoagulable state, something that sort of predisposes you for that, then you might have to take a blood, a blood thinner. So um, there was a development um, of other types of blood thinners, and some of those acted more like heparin. And over the years, they've gotten better and better at these, and uh, some of them were injectable and lasted longer periods of time. And then a lot, uh, we had some other alternatives to the Coumadin, which was the only one that you could take orally. And these have proved to be much more effective. Anybody who is currently on Coumadin or has been on Coumadin in the past, you know that you know it is extremely difficult 
to get your um, the right amount of blood thinning. And there's a, a test called an INR that can be uh, that can sort of go back and forth. And the reason for that is that coumadin or warfarin it interferes with the way that the body processes potassium. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, vitamin K, not potassium, uh, uh, vitamin K. And vitamin K is one of the uh, key components in one of the systems that the body has naturally to clot blood. You know, that's a that's a natural process. When you get cut, you have to plug that cut, and then you have to uh, cause a system, a cascade system that we call it, to, uh, to uh, make sure that you don't continue bleeding through there. And there are places in the body where you can have more of that, like the GI tract is one. Um, and that if you get too thin, you can see that, or joints is another one with some of the uh, congenital um, factor deficiencies like the hemophilias. So um, the, the some of the newer agents, it was a lot easier because it was a lot more standardized. You know, in Coumadin, you may be taking five milligrams one day and seven and a half the next, and maybe two days out of the week you take one dose, and the rest of the days you take a different dose. And it requires a lot of frequent testing, either at home or in the clinic, to keep those levels in, at the right uh, level. But, of course, like it is with a lot of new medications, there were some increases in costs. And uh, because of the way that they're made, even after we've had some of these for decades now, there are continued costs, high costs with this. Eliquis is one of them that is more, more frequently used to prevent blood clots. And, again, it's much more stable. You get a better um, – you get much less risk of bleeding on Eliquis, and it's much more predictable in how it how it works. And uh, and generally speaking, it's the same or better depending on which of the uh, blood clotting problems that you're dealing with, and as it compares to Coumadin. But for a lot of people, and I, you know, still have a fair number of patients <clears throat> that are on Coumadin, and uh, they're doing just fine. A lot of them do the home testing where they don't have to come in as much, and then just call in the the uh, the testing number, the INR. Um, so that I'm not sure about her dad, but basically this might be a, an alternative, although it is highly dependent on what kinds of foods you eat. So high uh, foods that are higher in vitamin K, leafy greens, those kind of which we love our leafy greens in the South. Um, you know, those kinds of things can can make it very hard to treat um, um, to get it thinned out enough. So there may be some other alternatives to that. And then you may <clears throat> you want to look at the insurance because certain insurances, including Medicare Part D programs, um, do approve some of them, but not others. And there's, you know, Eliquis is just one of a few that are, are available that are, aren't like Coumadin, but would do the job. So you really have to balance that kind of thing out. Um, and find the right medication for somebody. But uh, Eliquis shouldn't be the only thing that, um, that you can use um, in, in deference to some of those older ones. Let's go to John from Mobile. Good morning, John. Uh, good morning, Doctor. Um, you uh, mentioned calling in if we had a new medication, and I've got one. Sure. Um, I have been lucky enough not to need any medications except maybe a melaton and very weak melaton every once in a while. Well, I had, um, I've developed a problem with uh, my right hip. I called in, oh, months ago about that. Maybe even, no, it goes way back. But anyway, it's continued to be a problem, and I noticed that it, 
really discouraged me from taking, you know, those constitutional walks. And uh, at this point, I cannot run. Hmm. So um, back in March, my uh, GP uh, referred me to a bone and joint clinic, and I saw them about, oh, maybe 10 days ago. And the um, doctor who examined the hip and, and looked at the X-ray from my GP's lab recommended meloxicam tablets, yeah. 15 milligrams of those. And um, I was considering that this might be a long-term thing. Uh, the label says I can refill it three times uh, before a year is up. And um, it's, a, it's a brand new prescription. I've t I took the first one this morning. And I don't know what effects it will have, but I'm reading the literature, and oh boy, it can have. <laughs> yeah. Whew, um, oh gosh. Um, well, I'm I'm not going to look for. Well, sneezing, wheezing, uh, t tightness in chest, potential problems with um, uh, kidney function and yeah, yeah, blood pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah it, headache, dizziness, and uh, nothing's happened so far. Right. You know, in the hours since I took the first tablet, but I'm wondering, should I try to put up with the um, what I would call discomfort from this right hip uh, instead of taking what might be a, a, medic a medication that might be a real nuisance and a possible threat? Because as I said, I've been lucky um, for at least a dozen years not to need any medication. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I am familiar with that one. I've actually taken that myself. Uh, so it is in the same category, uh, general category, as ibuprofen. Uh, so things like Advil and, um, you know, the, the non-Tylenol over-the-counter medications. It's in that... <laughs> those, those are the, the very names that uh, the uh, clerk at the pharmacy... Yeah. mentioned to me not yeah. to take if I'm taking meloxicam. Yeah, because you'd be doing double duty, right? So, I mean, it's you uh, wouldn't take, you know, twice the amount, recommended amount of, say, Advil. So that's one of the reasons why you don't want to do that. It is a very effective medication, and it has the benefit of you only have to take it once a day. There is a decreased amount. There's a It comes usually in a 7.5 and a 15 milligram tablet. Um, you know, like with all medications, including over the counter, if you if you pulled the side effects for, say, ibuprofen or Advil, you'd find similar things on that list that you read for the meloxicam. So, in certain individuals, particularly if they already have other other problems, which sounds like you don't, uh, if they have diabetes, if they have hypertension, you need to be a little bit more careful about how you you use this medication. If they have kidney. Uh, problems like uh, uh, kidney failure of, uh, or chronic kidney disease, then certainly it's not one that you would want to use firsthand. But saying that, um, I certainly prescribe this. I usually prescribe it on a limited basis. In other words, you know, no more than about four to six week course. Let's see how that does. If you do have any other health problems, certainly you could monitor that um, with checking your kidney uh, kidney panel on the labs and just to make sure that you don't have any changes there. But generally, it's pretty well tolerated in people who don't have other medical problems. If you have a problem, though, with after reading the list and thinking, man, that's that's more of a risk than I want to take, certainly you could you know try to do without it or just take it 
infrequently, you know, and certainly I'll tell patients, hey, one or two days a week, if it's a bad day, you can take this and, you know, that that can help out. And that's not a huge problem with uh, some of the side effects. The other alternative might be um, might be some uh, really just Tylenol if you haven't already taken it. And Tylenol is fairly safe. Um, it Again, any kind of medication you take has the potential for side effects. And although Tylenol is not going to have the side effects on your kidney function or on some of the other ones with the, you know, with the shortness of breath or chest discomfort, if you do have any liver problems, that's really the system that you have to be a little bit careful. But Tylenol is a lot safer across the board for pain relief than, say, meloxicam and ibuprofen and some of the other NSAIDs. Um, the other the other group that that they've looked at is if you have uh, coronary coronary artery disease over time, but it really had to do with more so with kidney function and your your uh, hypertension. And again, this these were people who were taking this for months and months at a time. Um. And then there are other medications for chronic pain that you can take that don't have those effects. So things like gabapentin and um, Lyrica have been used over time. There's even been some of the um, some of the um, medications that were used to treat depression that they found. Hey, Cymbalta being one of them that that does help with chronic pain. It doesn't sound like you're anywhere near that. Um, people who have much more severe pain for longer periods of time might consider those things after they've tried other other uh, remedies. Um, I would not, uh, certainly one class of medications that I would avoid, and that would be the opioids. And I know you're not, you're not, you're probably way away from that. But that, uh, even treating that uh, for short periods of time can put you at risk for long-term um, depend, dependence on that. And really, they don't really improve pain that much in the long term for something. So with all of that out there, I would say, even with the list of medication, of, of side of potential at least side effects, I think it sounds like it's fairly safe for you to take it, at least on a short-term basis, see if it works. If it doesn't work, just stop it. And if you want to take it maybe once or twice a week and see if that, you know, if you can minimize how much you're taking of it, um, that's another alternative. Um, but if you, you know, if you're like, hey, this pain's not that big, big a deal. Um, and, you know, I just want to just move through this then I can do that. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, getting rid of that pain and resuming those walks and maybe even taking hikes. But the directions, uh, one last bit here, uh, make it sound like a round of medication that I should take faithfully once a day. Uh, but uh, are you saying that that is not necessarily ironclad? No, you don't. It doesn't. Yeah, you're not going to decrease the effect- effectiveness of it by taking it several times a week instead of every day. If you know that you want to have that hike um, and that, you know, over a couple of days, take that medication over those couple of days and it can certainly help uh, with the pain relief. But it's not doing anything that is protective in the joint itself. It's purely from a pain relief and inflammation standpoint. So that's all it's really doing is, is really more so for the pain. Uh, but it's not protective anyway for the joint or or anything like that, and it's not going to be less effective if you just take it intermittently. But if if I were you, and it sounds like you've got some great goals there of staying active, if you know you're going to be more active over say three to five days, 
then you may want to just take it like a day before that through those activities so you can enjoy that without having the pain uh, and staying active. Because any kind of, I mean, there's very few instances where you will hear a physician or orthopedic surgeon say, don't use that joint, um, particularly for the, the wear and tear osteoarthritis type of pains. They'll say the more you use it, the longer you're going to have the mobility uh, and it's a much better outcome. Laying around and not doing things, that's where you end up with a lot of problems. I like that. Okay, that's a lot of information you've given me. Thank you very much. All right, John. Good luck to you, and uh, thanks for calling. So, Dr. Jimmy, on a follow-up there, we're talking with John uh, in Mobile about a new medication, and we touched on side effects. And I know from past episodes that you've told us that even a minor side effect in, in sort of the clinical trials needs to be reported. Well, my question is, when you're having a new medication, how soon would some of these adverse effects start to show up? So how do you know whether you know it's going to be good for you or not? Yeah, great question, as always, from our producer, Kevin Farrell. So, um, you know, it really depends on the side effects. So if you're having problems breathing or swallowing, you may be having an allergic reaction to that medication. So that's a little bit different. And that's more serious. But and some of them may just be coincidences. So there are lots of times when you might just have a coincidence of something going on that you don't quite um, know about. And the physician may say or the pharmacist even may say, you know, you, that's probably not caused by this. But um, it really sort of depends. But you do need to be aware of that anytime you take any medication, you know, just being aware of some other problems that you might have with that is uh, certainly always a good idea. So. Um, yet more serious ones like breathing and swallowing. That's that's some of the the uh, most uh, severe things. We've got about a minute left. We're going to try to squeeze in Andrew from Vicksburg. Good morning, Andrew. Uh, yes, sir. I heard some of this week talking about all the Yeah, I think you said you sort of cut in and out, but I can probably squeeze this in in the next 40 seconds that we have or or a little bit of actually about a minute and 40 seconds. Sorry, I can't count this morning. Uh, I believe you were asking about melatonin, which is an over the counter medication. Melatonin is a natural hormone that the body produces to help regulate sleep and awake cycles. And typically, it starts secreting in a little bit of time uh, as the sun goes down. So uh, decreased light levels, particularly those uh, blue light levels, those are the ones that trigger melatonin to uh, decrease. So when those go down, you make more melatonin. It makes you sleepy, and it allows you to sleep a little bit better. So, um, yeah, it's safe to take over-the-counter sleep aid. Uh, doesn't have a whole lot of side effects. Some people notice that they dream a little bit differently. It's not as good for people who want to uh, who are waking up in the middle of the night and having sort of sleep fragmentation. It is um, it is somewhat good. You know, it's certainly good to try it in people who are just trying to get to sleep. But it's most useful. If you are sleeping at different times, like you're changing time zones, like if you have a trip to Europe, it's great to take for those first couple of days when you get there, right before you go to sleep to sort of reset your clock internally. Or if you're switching time zones or in people who have who work shifts and they're going from night shift to day shift and back and forth. That's the most evidence we have where it works. But um, other than that, it's totally safe to take, really doesn't interfere with much else. And, you know, we even even kids and adolescents, if they're having some problems, sometimes we'll ask them to try that. 
All right, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank everybody for calling in. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. Tune to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android